the the thing that has really stood out for me um, is that no matter how different things were back then to what we are going through, God's word is always really relevant to us. So if you'd like to follow on the screen with me or in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hey friends, it's nice to be with you again. And um, yeah, it is a privilege to be finishing off this 1 Corinthians series. I too am looking forward to 
uh, thinking about this passage with you all. And I'd actually really love to know, uh, perhaps we could have a chat after the service finishes over supper. What have you been impacted by as we've been studying through 1 Corinthians? I think it's been a really helpful book for us and I'd love to hear what God's been teaching you over this last term or so. Uh, one quick announcement from me before uh, we have a think about the passage is just that last week we mentioned a congregational poll, which is a very short questionnaire that we're asking you to complete to give us an indication of which service at WBC you anticipate being at next year. Uh, there's going to be two morning services from term one, uh, a nine o'clock and a 10.30 a.m. And then also the 6 p.m. will continue as is. But we're also looking for information about which services you're able to serve and volunteer in. There's going to be a QR code. It'll be on the screen after the service. You can scan it and fill it out. It takes about 30 seconds to do. That would really help us with our planning. So we'd appreciate if you could do that tonight for us. Thank you. Let me pray and then uh, we'll get stuck into 1 Corinthians 16. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we, we do thank you for this last term. Thank you for the ways that you have answered prayer for us to teach us and to grow us and to help us as a church. And we pray that the lessons that we've learnt through your word this last term uh, would linger with us and would be buried deep in our hearts, that we might be different people and a different church in light of the things that you've taught to us over these last weeks. We pray too for tonight as we come to the end of this letter. Uh, with this kind of random collection of instructions and farewells and things like that. Uh, but Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the important things that you're saying here in your word. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft to obey the good things that you, you reveal to us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'd like to start tonight just with an, an observation, a quote for you from the cultural historian Christopher Lash. It's a bit of a wordy quote, so just you might have to read it a couple of times. Let's have a read, see if you can follow along. This is what Christopher Lash says. The proliferation of visual auditory images in a society of spectacle, as it has been described, encourages a kind of preoccupation with the self. People now respond to others as if their actions are being recorded and simultaneously transmitted to an unseen audience or stored up for close scrutiny at some time later. These prevailing conditions thus bring out narcissistic personality traits that were present in everyone. Do you get what he's saying here? In a, a visual auditory culture like the one we're living in, everybody is now performing their lives, performing to an unseen audience. And what that's doing is it's breeding narcissism. That's what Christopher Lash is saying here, right? It's an interesting observation, isn't it? And I wonder as you read that, if you automatically start thinking about the impact of the smartphone and social media on our society over the last 10 years or so. Because there has been clearly a rise, I think, of narcissism in that kind of space. It's estimated... Uh, now that on average every day 2 billion selfies are sent via Facebook, WhatsApp and Snapchat. 2 billion selfies every day. Uh, some late research recently has suggested that young adults in Western countries are spending on average one third of their waking hours looking at their smartphone. If you're a young adult, you ought to be really worried about that. That's kind of shocking. Uh, there really does seem to be a preoccupation with the self these days, as Christopher Lash kind of puts it. Now, what's really interesting about this quote is that Christopher Lash wrote this in 1979, 24 years before Facebook went public, 28 years before the first iPhone. The truth is that a preoccupation with the self has been a human problem long before the word selfie was ever invented. Uh, now, Martin Luther knew this. Martin Luther, the great reformer 500 years ago, 
talked about how the human heart is naturally curved in upon itself. Uh, and what he meant by that was that despite our best efforts, we simply cannot get beyond ourselves as human beings. Despite our best intentions to love and to serve other people to the best of our abilities, human beings find it impossible to escape the gravity well of self-interest. Now, I don't think it's a surprise because those things are true that when you put you know, 100 or 200 or 300 such sinners together in a church, you very quickly find a tendency to curve in upon ourselves. That has been the problem with the Corinthian church that we've been looking at this term. And we've seen it time and time again throughout this letter that the Corinthians are preoccupied with themselves. They are a church that's inwardly focused. They are constantly comparing themselves to each other, trying to outperform each other, trying to sort of be concerned with their own privileges and their own reputation, their own social standing. Really, this is a church that is selfish and egotistical and narcissistic, I think. And because we share the same human nature as them, those are things that we are tending towards as well. We are prone to those mistakes. As Christopher Lash says, those traits are present in everyone. We're prone to, for our hearts to curve inward and become obsessed by ourselves too. Here in this final chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is going to lay out, I think, the remedy to that inward-focused church life. And the remedy, I think, the heart of the chapter is there in verses 13 and 14. I think that's kind of a summary of the whole thing. Have a look, verse 13, where Paul calls these Christians to a kind of military self-discipline. He says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Those are kind of commands you'd give to a soldier in a war, right? And it's no surprise that he would say such things to this troubled church in Corinth because clearly the thing that they need to do is to stand firm in the gospel. They have made so many errors in that regard. They must stand firm. So what's that going to look like? Verse 14, do everything in love. Love. Love is the overarching command at the end of this book. It is the truth that Paul wants to leave the Corinthians with, a way of life that is love, just as he said in chapter 13, that for a Christian, that is what the life of a Christian looks like, love. Love is what will keep you rooted in the gospel. Love is what will rescue you from being curved in upon yourself. Now, in this final chapter, what Paul's going to do is he's going to, he's going to show the Corinthians three things they ought to love, three directions that their love ought to face. The first thing that they are to love, Paul says, is they are to love other churches. That's his first instruction here, love other churches. One of Paul's main concerns in this chapter, I think, is to give the Corinthians kind of a broader vision than they have been operating with. Paul kind of wants to zoom the camera out a little bit and help them to see kind of the lay of the land, see what else is going on in the world. And so you notice there in verses 19 and 20, as he comes to the end and he starts doing his final greetings, as he typically does in the, in the end, of, end of these letters, he puts a particular emphasis on those greetings. Did you notice that from verse 19? Have a read. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where Paul refers to this collection of churches in the province of Asia. That's a region kind of roughly encompassing Turkey. Uh, And it would have included churches in Ephesus, which is where Paul was at the time when he was writing this, as well as churches in places like Troas and Colossae and Laodicea, as well as others. Paul says that all of the churches in that area are sending their greetings across the Aegean Sea to Greece into Corinth. All these churches in Asia have evidently heard about the Corinthian church and they're concerned about them. And out of love, they're sending their greetings to their brothers and sisters there. Notice he also mentions Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila were church planters. They'd been in Corinth. The Corinthians knew them and now they've moved to Ephesus and they planted a church there. They're hosting a church in their house. And in fact, Paul says, remember that all of the believers here, the brothers and sisters in Ephesus, they're thinking about you too. They send their greetings to Corinth. It's a good thing when we remember that we are part of something much larger that God is doing in the world. It puts things into perspective for us as a church, doesn't it? When we hear about what God is doing in Bangladesh, for example, it's a healthy thing for us to remember that. Here, Paul is clearly helping them to see the broader landscape. They are part of a larger body, a larger family in the hope that when they see that, they will be shaken out of their self-centeredness. If you kind of think about uh, a racehorse, a racehorse uh, running on a track, they will usually wear blinkers on their eyes, these blinkers that are kind of like things that block their peripheral vision, stop them from seeing all the other stuff going on around the other horses and that sort of thing. It allows the horse to just focus on what's ahead of it and to just keep going in that one direction. If those blinkers come off mid-race, as they do sometimes, the horses get spooked very easily because suddenly they realize, well, there's a lot more going on here than I was aware of before. And they start to to wobble and deviate and go off course a little bit. Now, in in a sense, I think what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to rip the blinkers off the Corinthians to help them to see what else is going on in the world beyond their church so that they would deviate from their self-centeredness that they've been living in. And in particular, Paul is going to show them the practical love that they ought to to show and share with these other churches. So flip back to verses 1 to 4 in this chapter. Paul says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve, and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Now, the reason for Paul giving this instruction is because there was a great famine happening at this time on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, such that Christians in Jerusalem were literally starving at this point. And Paul has evidently been mobilizing the Galatian churches, that's southern Turkey kind of region, and he's been encouraging them to start gathering a financial gift to send across to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem across the sea. Uh, And here he's instructing the Corinthians to join in and do likewise. And you can kind of see there some of the the concerns, the particular concerns Paul has about this collection, can't you? He wants this collection to be done intentionally. That's part of it. That each person should consciously set aside an amount of money on the first day of the week, which would have been the, the day that they were meeting together. He also wants the collection to be done proportionate to their income. That's important, isn't he? He doesn't tell them what proportion that is as much as we might 
be curious to know that. But notice what else, what else he doesn't say about the amount there. He doesn't tell them to set aside a tithe. A tithe was what God's Old Testament people were commanded to do, setting aside 10% of their income. But by the time you get to the New Testament, that command's not repeated anywhere. Rather, there's a new principle that governs Christian giving, and it's the principle of sacrificial generosity. Christians are now supposed to give in response to the generosity that God has showed us through Jesus. And so how much is that for a Christian? Well, Again, the Bible doesn't say. That's for each one of us to determine before God. So this money is to be collected intentionally. It's to be proportionate to their income. Paul's also concerned here that it's administered rightly. Did you pick up on that? Paul's really concerned here to separate himself from this financial collection. You remember actually back in chapter 8 where we started this series, some of the Corinthians were accusing Paul of just being in it for the money. Like he was one of the Corinthian hucksters going around just trying to get a few dollars for his preaching. Paul doesn't want that accusation to stick. And so he says, look, I'll have nothing to do with this collection. You choose the men, send them on to Jerusalem. If you want me to go, I'll go with them. But he's not trying to inject himself into this situation. And there are some immediate applications for us as we think about how this collection was going to function here. Uh, Applications to do with our financial giving. We could conclude when we read this, for example, that it would be wise to be intentional about our financial giving as Christians, Uh, not being haphazard and forgetful about it, deliberate about it, though, regular. That's certainly true. You could also read this and you could say, well, we've got to make sure that each one of us is above reproach when it comes to financial matters. We've got to make sure we don't get confused as being in it for the money. That's certainly true as well. But that's not the main thing that these verses teach. The main thing these verses teach is about the goodness of supporting churches and pastors and missionaries and Christian causes outside of our own congregation. Do you know, if, if we are only ever concerned with our own church's financial needs, meeting our own budget, what we're going to spend our money on next, if we never think about the needs of other churches and other Christians and other ministries outside of ourselves, that's a deeply unhealthy pattern for us to be in. Uh, to give money to gospel causes outside of these walls is to recognize the reality that we are part of something bigger. It's to make a statement with our wallet that the kingdom of God is bigger than just our church. Uh, That's why I am so glad that WBC has that long, rich history of giving significant amount of money to missionaries and gospel workers around Australia and around the world. That's a very healthy thing for us to do and to continue to do. It prevents us from curving too much in on ourselves. It's why we are pleased to support other gospel causes as we have opportunity. Uh, We've already heard about a couple of those kind of opportunities today with the Baptist World Aid collection. There's also going to be a collection for Baptist World Aid on Christmas Day if you come to the morning service then. We've heard about the collection for Hope Street as well. Let me encourage you to get involved and support those worthwhile causes as ways of showing love practically to your brothers and sisters who will benefit from those things. This kind of broader vision of what God is doing in the world, that's why we are pleased to partner with other local churches for for the sake of mission and for the sake of training from time to time. It's why we make deliberate efforts to pray for other local churches regularly here on Sundays and at our prayer and praise nights when we have them. So can I say, if you're not already doing so, can I encourage you to learn the names 
of some of the other local churches in Wollongong. In fact, learn the names of their pastors and pray for them by name, that they would be fresh in the faith, that they would be faithful to the gospel, that the Lord would use them. Be praying for them regularly. Those other local churches, they're not teams that we compete against. They are our cherished family in Christ, the ones for whom Christ died. And we want to do whatever we can to help them to flourish and to grow and to reach people with the gospel. And praying for them is a great, easy way for every one of us to be involved in supporting them. Friends, we are part of something much bigger than just WBC. So let's remove the blinkers and see what God is doing around us. Let's love other churches. Secondly, as Paul says here, Let's love our leaders. It's the second direction Paul encourages these Corinthians to love. Love your leaders. And from verse 5 in this passage, Paul starts to talk about his travel plans. Uh, he says in verse 5 that he's planning to come to them in Corinth. Uh, he's going to go via Macedonia and that if God permits, it's going to be a lengthy visit when he comes. He doesn't just want to come for a short time. Now, do you notice as, as Paul's describing this, his humility in, in describing his travel plans? Uh, there is a real dependence on God here. Paul's just making his plans in line with what he thinks is best. And he's trusting that his sovereign God will see to it and put him where he needs to be. Uh, and then in verse 8, Paul explains why it is that he's not coming to Corinth immediately. He says, verse 8, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because... A great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Now, Paul doesn't give us any more details, unfortunately, about what that effective work was, what this ministry opportunity was, but we could probably guess that it was an evangelistic opportunity. There was a platform for him to share the gospel with the people in Ephesus, and he didn't want to miss it. Seems like the church in Ephesus was going through a period of growth. And Paul looked at that kind of circumstance and he concluded that it would be right for him to just stay put and to keep doing that work for as long as he's able until that opportunity passes. You see that it's, it's the cause of the gospel which is governing Paul's travel plans here. Paul's priority is to give himself to the work of the Lord wherever and whenever that will take him. Uh, that is the very thing, you remember, that he has instructed the Corinthians to do. You remember at the end of chapter 15 we saw last week, Paul instructs them to give themselves fully to the work of the Lord because of the resurrection so that they would know that their labor in the Lord is not in vain. Go ahead, work for the Lord, labor to see churches established, Christians built up to maturity, people won for Christ. Paul's got an opportunity in Ephesus to do just that. But do you notice as well how that opportunity coexists with opposition. Paul says there in verse 9 that there are many who oppose him. And yet he still looks at this situation in Ephesus and he says, great gospel opportunity before me. <laughs> and I just wonder sometimes whether perhaps we might see gospel opportunities slightly differently to Paul. Whether in, in your mind and my mind perhaps, the prospect of opposition if we were to share the gospel with our neighbor or our work colleague or whoever, the prospect that they might not like that makes us think, well, that mustn't be the gospel opportunity God wants me to take. Not so for Paul. N not so for Pastor James Roy in Bangladesh. The opposition there coexists with the opportunity and he's not afraid to take that opportunity, even if there is opposition. So too Paul. 
Paul's commitment here to, to doing the work of the Lord means that he's going to stay in Ephesus. Uh, he's going to come to Corinth eventually, but instead, for the time being, he's going to send Timothy ahead of him. So have a read from verse 10. Paul says, When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. You remember that one of the biggest problems in the church in Corinth has been their worldly thinking when it came to how they assessed their leaders. You remember that? They were forming into factions, dividing over which leader and boasting about which one they thought was the most impressive and eloquent. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Some saying, I follow Apollos. Well, Paul knows that the Corinthians would rather if he was the one who came and visited them. Paul was the one who planted the church in Corinth. Timothy, he was just this kind of young punk, this this Paul's associate, if you like. They wanted somebody impressive, somebody captivating. I think who they really wanted was Apollos. Apollos was the one who was very eloquent, even by Corinthian standards. Look at verse 12. They had clearly asked Paul to send Apollos. So Paul says, verse 12, now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Again, Paul doesn't give the details about why Apollos is not going to come right now. Perhaps, though, Apollos was grieved by the divisiveness, the worldliness of his fans in Corinth, and he didn't want to wrongly encourage them, and so he waited until their fandom had kind of died down a bit before he returned there, perhaps. They weren't going to get Apollos. They weren't even going to get Paul. They were going to get Timothy. For the Corinthians, that would have seemed like a pretty bad consolation prize, I think. So Paul has to give these instructions to them there to be kind to this young leader, not to give this young leader a reason to fear them, not to treat Timothy with contempt, but instead they had to receive him and support him and value him. After all, Paul says, Timothy is carrying on the work of the Lord just the same way that I am. And that is the qualification that makes Timothy a fit for them, that makes Timothy the kind of leader that they need. Because he too is carrying on the work of the Lord. He's giving himself to that work. He is the leader that the Corinthians need. He's not the leader that they want. There is often a difference, isn't there, between what we want and what we need. Uh, I learned that lesson, I think, with the first two cars that I ever owned. When I was 18, my first car was a humble Mazda 121. You remember these things getting around 20 years ago now? Uh, they were affectionately known as the pregnant roller skate, and you can see why, right? These cars, were they were never going to win any design awards. These cars would was, cars was struggle to hit triple digits on the highway, but this it, it was safe. It was a good car for a teenager to have. It, it was incredibly reliable mechanically. It never had a single issue with it. It could run on the smell of an oily rag. It was exactly the kind of car I needed as an 18-year-old with my P-plates. But it certainly wasn't the car that I wanted. And so soon, I got impatient and I sold my humble Mazda 121. I bought the car of my dreams. I bought a Nissan Exa. Oh, my goodness. Now, my friends told me it was a hairdresser car and I, I chose to take that as a compliment. But, I mean, look at it. It was red. It was loud. It had pop-up headlights. The roof came off. You could, you know, feel the wind blowing through your hair. It was exactly what I wanted. 
But I tell you what, uh, that thing would break down if there was a bit of a stiff breeze about. Uh, that thing cost me more in repairs than I did to actually buy the thing outright. And really, all that car did was just fuel my ego. I had mistaken what I wanted with what I needed. I had prioritized style over substance. And the same can be true when it comes to Christian leaders. We need leaders with real substance. Uh, We might want leaders who are funny and captivating and cool, but what we need are leaders who simply love and serve Jesus with their whole lives, just like Timothy did. We need leaders who are faithful servants of the Lord. Uh, It's it's very similar to the way that Paul mentions uh, his other friends here, Stephanus and all of his companions. Have a read from verse 18. Paul says, You know that the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Achaia, and they've devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Uh, This is the second time Paul has mentioned Stephanus. If you can remember all the way back to chapter 1, Paul mentions that he was the one who baptized Stephanus and his whole household. And these other men uh, with him here, Fortunatus and Achaicus, um, scholars suggest that their names indicate that they were either slaves or perhaps now freed slaves. Their names basically translate to Fortunatus, basically means lucky. Achaicus means the guy from Achaia. That's who they were. Uh, and Paul mentions that all three of these guys here have done good work. They have refreshed Paul's spirits. They've served him. They've encouraged him. He says that, verse 15, they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. Oh, boy, devoting yourself to the service of the Lord's people. I love the way that the old King James Version translates this verse. It says that Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, they they have become addicted to the service of the Lord's people. Oh, what a wonderful addiction that is. Friends, pray that God would make you so addicted. In fact, pray if you're a Christian that, that next year would be a deeply discouraging year for you if your heart curves inwards. If you only give yourself to the service of yourself, pray that God would make you dissatisfied with that. Pray that God in his kindness would prevent you from doing that. And instead, in his mercy, he would compel you to give yourself in love to the Lord's people. I tell you, we long to see more of that attitude fill WBC, for that to be the normal practice of every single one of us. Uh, We want to see church members at WBC increasingly inconveniencing themselves for the welfare and the spiritual good of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, We want to see church members taking on more and more responsibility in ministry, in our teams here, so that our church and our gospel ministry can have a greater reach. We want to see more and more church members giving up their jobs in order to be trained for full-time ministry, making it their life's work to lead churches and to preach the gospel. We long for each one of us to be more like Stephanus and his household and Fortunatus and Achaicus. The church needs saints like that because they're examples to us. They are role models who, who teach us how to break out of our own orbit. He says in verse 18 that people like that deserve recognition. That is, we ought, to, we ought to praise people like that and honor them and celebrate them and, yes, love leaders like that because they show us the pattern that we should follow. 
You know, in God's kindness, uh, I'm so pleased to be able to say that there are so many leaders like that already at WBC, elders, deacons, ministry team leaders, committed volunteers. Let me urge you, friends, to give recognition to such people, to take the time to thank them for modeling Christ-like service and sacrificial love to us. Pray for those people. Pray for their ministries. Gossip positively about them. Oh, did you see what so-and-so did? How much they gave up in order to serve us? What a wonderful gift that was. Follow the example of believers like that and leaders like that because the more we follow their example, the less we will curve in on ourselves. We are to love other churches. We are to love our leaders. And lastly, and most importantly, Paul finishes here by reminding us that we are to love the Lord. Love the Lord. Uh, the, The failures of the Corinthian church, which have been so obvious all the way throughout this letter, they stem from one root problem. That is an absence of love for the Lord. Uh, No matter whether it's been their pride or their sexual immorality or their idol worship or their divisiveness or their willful unbelief, whatever it's been, there's been a greater sin that has inspired all of those things. And it's been a failure to love the Lord Jesus. Paul says in verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. It becomes clear in verse 22 that in Christianity there is no understanding of a middle ground with God. There is no such thing as religious neutrality according to the Bible. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed, Paul says. No middle ground. Love Christ or be cursed by him. That's true for the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, as Paul is warning them here, and it's true for us today as well. If you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, let me urge you in love that you need to reckon with this. God is a great sovereign who accepts only the love of submission to him. Anything else is opposition to him. I think as Paul finishes this letter, it it, it might feel like Paul is threatening us into loving God, but that's not his intention here. Now, Paul is calling us to remember the grace and love of the Lord Jesus, verse 23, to to remember the undeserved favor that God has already shown to us. Remember that Christ loved you first when you were still his enemy. Remember that Christ, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. Remember that Christ came to earth to serve you, not to be served. Remember that Christ shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember that Christ is the only one whose heart was not curved in on itself. Remember the grace of the Lord Jesus. Remember that even for messy churches and messy people like us, Remember God's grace. That is what will make us stand firm in the gospel. It is what will rescue us from that gravity well of self-interest. It is what will keep us as a church from becoming curved in on ourselves. Let me pray for us.
Almighty God. Our minds struggle to even comprehend the reality that you are love, that you are the God whose heart is turned outwards for us in your very nature. And God, when we look at ourselves, we see how easily we become obsessed with ourselves. This preoccupation with self, God, we confess that we have turned our hearts inward. And God, we fear the prospect of failing to stand firm in the gospel. We know that it is true that all who do not love the Lord will be cursed by him. And so, God, please, would you remind us of your love for us that you've shown us in Jesus? Remind us of the grace that is found in him for fallible and weak and failing people like us. God, would you teach us to love others just like you have shown us, laying down our lives, laying down our preferences, giving our everything for their good. Only you can do this, God. So please fill us with your love by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.